0: Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I am your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as a professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. I hope you're having a great day in the Lord. And I want to begin by just discussing a book that's been out for a few years, but I think that this book and this movement has really influenced younger pastors and younger Christian leaders in a very negative way. And the book is called Pagan Christianity, Pagan Christianity. It's by Frank Viola and George Barna. And they make a lot of arguments in this book. Basically, the theme of the book, the thesis of the book, is that everything that we do today in church comes from paganism, comes from Greek philosophy. It has its roots in, in mystical or in Greek thought, not in. The scriptures, and so a lot of the things that we do today in our evangelical churches, they cast stones at, and they also use a lot of research from the Barna Group to somehow support uh, their claims. Basically, what they're saying is, is that um, mo- here, let me just give you a quote from the book: Most of what present-day Christians do in church each Sunday is rooted not in the New Testament, but in pagan culture and rituals developed long after the death. Of the apostles. And so that's their basic theme. And so they denigrate things like the expository sermon, the role of a trained and equipped pastor, and other things. And really, what I want to interact with on this podcast is their chapter four, their treatment on the sermon Protestantism's most sacred cow. And I want to interact with the claims that they are making about expository preaching, about the sermon. And let me just begin by saying that I believe that their research is pretty shallow. I don't think their research is very scholarly when you look at the claims that they're making. And so what I want to do is I want to read some of their claims And then I want to go to the scripture, and I also want to go to church history to debunk or to um, negate those claims that they are making. And so I'm going to be reading directly from chapter 4 of Pagan Christianity, and the title of the chapter is The Sermon, Protestantism's Most Sacred Cow. And these statements will shock you, okay? So let me read. Quote, The stunning reality is that today's sermon has no root in Scripture. Rather, it was borrowed from pagan culture, nursed and adopted into the Christian faith. The sermon actually detracts from the very purpose for which God designed the church gathering, and it has very little to do with genuine spiritual growth. Don't fate dead away. We will prove these words in the following pages. The sermon detracts from the very purpose for which God designed the church gathering, and it has very little to do with genuine spiritual growth. Now, they're going to go on and argue that when you look at the Old Testament and you look at the New Testament and you look at, the church, hist- and look at church history, the way that we do expository sermons today has no root in the Scriptures. And so what I want to do is I actually want to interact with their claims and give what I believe is a scholarly answer to what they're asserting. So here's an assertion that they make on page 87. Quote, There is no indication that Old Testament prophets or priests gave regular speeches to God's people. Instead, the nature of Old Testament preaching was sporadic, fluid, and open for audience participation. Preaching in the ancient synagogue followed a similar pattern. That is a false assertion. And I'm going to prove that biblically. Their assertion is that there's no indication that Old Testament prophets or priests gave regular speeches to God's people. And the nature of Old Testament preaching was sporadic, fluid, and open for audience participation. Preaching in the ancient synagogue followed a similar pattern. And then there's a footnote down there on synagogue preaching, basically saying the only difference in synagogue preaching is that a message delivered on a biblical text was a regular occurrence. Even so, most synagogues allowed for any member to preach to the people who wished to do so. That is also a false statement. So let's look biblically at the Old Testament prophets and priests and see did they give regular sermons... One directional monologues, expositions of God's word to God's people, or was it free flowing? Was it open for audience participation? And let's start with Moses. And I encourage you to go back and read and listen to a a podcast I did a few weeks ago, Was Moses an Expository Preacher? I argue in full detail about that, but let me just give you um, some review on that. The book of Deuteronomy is structured around three expository sermons preached by Moses. These are monologue sermons. He is standing and preaching before the people corporately, and the entire book of Deuteronomy is a picture of God's people assembled under the authoritative preaching of the word by one man who is called and qualified to lead and to preach to those people. The first expository sermon in the book of Deuteronomy starts in chapter 1, verse 6, and extends all the way to chapter 4, verse 40. Structurally, you can go back and read that and see that it is a sermon. The second expository sermon in Deuteronomy begins at chapter 4, verse 44, and extends all the way through chapter 26, verse 68. And the third expository sermon extends from chapter 29, Verses 1 through chapter 30, verse 20. The Charles Simeon Trust, which is a great uh, website and ministry that provides help and expository preaching, uh, they, they describe Moses' ministry in Deuteronomy this way, quote, "...expository preaching is considered to be among the highest forms of teaching and is perhaps the greatest form of preaching." The ecclesiastic importance stems both from rich biblical tradition of exposition by example and from biblical injunction. Much of the scriptures as preach are a preached material, and we can learn much from God's preachers handling God's word, explaining the plain meaning and intentions. Moses did it. The book of Deuteronomy records three expository sermons that Moses preached. On the plains of Moab, as the nation of Israel was poised to cross the Red Sea, I mean, not the Red Sea, cross the Jordan River and enter into the Promised Land. And so this was not sporadic, this was not necessarily fluid, and there was no audience participation. This was the called man of God, Moses, who had been equipped for this. Back in Exodus chapter 4, God called Moses from the burning bush and empowered him by saying to Moses, I will be your mouthpiece. God would be the mouthpiece of Moses, the called, the equipped man of God stood before the people and with authority declared the word of God. Now, what was he expositing? What was Moses actually preaching? Well, he was not preaching new material. He was preaching what God had already delivered in Exodus. And so the preaching in the book of Deuteronomy were expositions of what God had already given in Scripture, in the tablets, in the law, in Exodus. And so Moses preaches, he, he, he reads the Scripture, he explains the Scripture, and then he exhorts the people to respond to God in that Scripture in three expository sermons. And so even just from the, the book of Deuteronomy, we see Moses as the called man of God, standing and preaching before the people. And what I find very interesting is that Moses actually trained and commissioned and bequeathed the priests to carry on this expository preaching ministry in the nation of Israel after his death. Moses knew that he would no longer be the main preacher, and so what he did was he equipped and commissioned the priests to practice expository preaching and teaching as the called, equipped, ordained, if you will, men of God in the Old Testament nation of Israel. Now, you need to understand where we find this. Well, let's go to Leviticus chapter 10, verses 10 through 11. Leviticus 10, 10 through 11. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. This is God's commission to the priesthood. What are they supposed to do? They are supposed to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord spoke to them by Moses. Moses would be gone. The law was delivered. The law was delivered to that generation in Exodus. That generation died away in the wilderness. A new generation came on the scene. Moses preaches three expository sermons to that generation on the banks of the Jordan River. And then Moses says, listen, when you get into the promised land and when you settle the promised land, the law still needs to be taught to the people. So I am commissioning you as the priests to systematically teach the people the law of God. Well, let's go to Deuteronomy again. And we will see Moses commissioning them again. Deuteronomy thirty-three ten, speaking about the priests, they shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law, and they shall put incense before you and hold burnt offerings on your altar. They are to be the teachers of Israel. And then, if you go to Second Chronicles chapter 17, verse 9, you see this in action. They, speaking about the priests, they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them, they went about through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. Now, this is a systematic equipping, commissioning of the priesthood to go throughout the, Judah to go throughout the people, to have the book of the law, to have the scriptures, to have Deuteronomy there before them, and to go into the villages, to go house to house, to go town to town, to go through all the cities, and to teach the people the law. Now, this is before the synagogue system. This is before the diaspora, when Babylon comes in and conquers Uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, and they're taken into 70 years of Babylonian captivity, and the temple is ransacked, and and they're displaced. During that 70 years of captivity, they actually had to uh, create church because they could not worship anymore in a temple and that's when the synagogue system emerged was during exile and so in these foreign towns in Babylon and all these places they were taken to captivity the Jews were allowed to assemble in the synagogue and so you had a trained rabbi you had a priest who was trained in the scriptures and so thus emerged the synagogue system and we'll look at that in just a few moments as far as what was involved in that in the synagogue. So Moses preached expository sermons. The, he, he, he commissioned the priest, called them to go teach the nation of Israel expositorily, teach the law throughout the land. And then on the return, when the Jewish kept, captives were able to come back, under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, you can go back and read those books, the rebuilding of the wall, the rebuilding of the temple. But if you remember the rebuilding of the temple, I mean the rebuilding of the wall in Nehemiah, we have that great time where the wall has been rebuilt and Ezra the priest stands before the people and they have this great time of revival. And so we come to... Uh, Nehemiah chapter 8 and let's just read that Nehemiah chapter 8 there's a bunch of funny names in there but let's just um, go ahead and read the scriptures here Nehemiah 8 verse 1 and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. What is that book of the law? It's it's Deuteronomy. It's the written scriptures. So Ezra the priest, now he's a priest, remember. He's been trained in the scriptures, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday in the presence of the men, And the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. Now let's just stop and talk about this. He stood on a wooden platform. Why did he stand on a wooden platform? Well, because the entire nation had gathered here. And there had to be a high enough stage, if you will, for him to be able to read the book of the law, to preach and to be visible. So what you have here is you have a stage, you have a platform, you have a pulpit, if you will, and you have the trained man of God, Ezra the priest, standing before the people, giving a expository sermon through the book of Deuteronomy, preaching a monologue sermon to the gathered people. We do not see this as being open for audience participation. Now, up on the stage, because it's happening all day long, he has priests beside him to help him. Because if you read Deuteronomy from from beginning to end in a loud voice without a speaker system back during that time, it would take a lot of energy. And so beside him stood Mattatiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Peddiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashem, Hashpadonah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. Now, visibly, demonstrably, what is he doing? He's showing reverence for the Word of God. He's standing, and literally, he's opening the Bible, he's opening the Scriptures before them and they all stand in reverence to the open Word of God. There's one man uh, up on the stage preaching along with his his cohorts up there to help him, and they may have taken turns reading the Scriptures, but even then, they're trained men, they're they're the priests, and there's this authoritative standing, opening the Word of God, and the people stand as he opens it. Verse 6, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped. The Lord with their faces to the ground. And Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Ahab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kaleida, all these different people, <laughs> the Levites, those are the priests, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book of the law clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood. The reading. Think about that for a moment. What had happened was Ezra stands, he reads the scripture and he reads it probably to be translated because these people uh, had been in Babylonian captivity and they may not have have spoken actual Hebrew and so there's probably translation. But what happens is after the expository sermon, He sends Levites to go out into the crowd and to read the Scriptures, to clearly give the sense of the Scriptures so that the people could understand. That's expository preaching. You read the text and you explain the text and you encourage people to obey the text clearly. Verse 9, And Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe and Levites, who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then He said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink innocent portions, and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. What happened under this powerful expository preaching by trained priests who exposited the Scriptures, who taught the Scriptures, who declared it clearly and with authority? Well, the people were affected They understood their disobedience. They understood how they fell short. They were grieved. They mourned. They understood for the first time what the Scripture said. And they came under deep conviction. And so just from Moses preaching three expository sermons as the one called man of God before the people standing, didn't necessarily have a physical pulpit, but he stood before the people. It was a monologue. It was a speech. It was a sermon. And then he commissions the priests and the Levites to go throughout the land in Jerusalem and in Israel during the time that they occupy the promised land to preach and to teach and to equip. And then they do that. And then here you have an example of an expository sermon from a priest, Ezra, standing before the people. And and in none of these passages of Scripture do you ever see any type of dialogue or audience participation or any type of free-flowing discussion. No, what you see is a declaratory an authoritative one man or a group of trained, called, skilled men in the Scriptures standing before the people and declaring the text, explaining the text, urging people to obey the text this is not small group Bible study. This is not people sitting around in a circle and going around saying, well, what do you think this means? And what do you think this means? And and, and just kind of giving this reader response type of um, attitude towards the scriptures. No, this is a model we see in the Old Testament where one man or a group of trained, skilled priests who had studied the law, to be approved in the law, this, is what, this, this was not just your average Joe Israelite standing up and shooting from the hip on what he thinks the scripture is. No, these are trained men of God standing before the people of God. They're assembled under the authority of the word and the man of God stands and declares the word with power, with passion, and with authority. So when they say there's no indication that Old Testament prophets or priests gave regular speeches to God's people, instead the nature of Old Testament preaching was sporadic, fluid, and open for audience participation. Is false based upon what we've just seen in the Scriptures. Now, preaching in the ancient synagogue followed a similar pattern. Well, let's talk about the preaching in the ancient synagogue because we do have an example of Jesus going into the synagogue. And as Jesus goes into the synagogue, he goes there in Luke chapter 4. And as he goes into the synagogue, he preaches an expository sermon from Luke chapter 4. And this is the greatest example of what we see from um, expository preaching in in the synagogue. And we see an example of the synagogue model in what Jesus does. And so let's pick up in Luke chapter 4 and let's read this together. Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes into the synagogue. Okay, let's pick up in verse um, 14. Luke 4, 14. This is after the baptism of Jesus. He's been sent out by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he is empowered by the Holy Spirit to resist that temptation. And then he emerges from the 40 days and starts his public ministry. And he goes to his hometown of Nazareth during the synagogue in the synagogue and preaches an expository sermon from the book of Isaiah. Verse 14, Luke chapter 4. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And he said, And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote me this proverb, saying, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in our hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Some things to note here is that it was Jesus' custom to go to the synagogue. Now this is one recorded example that we have. We don't have every recorded example of every sermon that Jesus preached every time he went to the synagogue. This is part of um, the synoptic gospels. When you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're selective in what they chose under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to record. And so we don't have every single sermon that Jesus preached. What we have here is an important sermon, his first sermon in his hometown of Nazareth. And it's important to note that it was his custom to go to the synagogue, the synagogue. And so, when you look at the synagogue, you have to ask, your, ask the question, Well, what, what happened during the synagogue? What, what's going on um, in the synagogue during that time? Well, there's a lot of things that happened during the synagogue, but let's just talk about what were the main elements of the synagogue worship. Okay? Here's what would happen in synagogue worship. Now, this is attested to by almost every New Testament scholar. If you look at the top commentaries on the Gospel of Luke by your top historians, your top scholars, this is all corroborated in almost every uh, reputable commentary of what happened in the synagogue. Because what we have here is in Luke chapter 4, the oldest account of a synagogue worship service. And you can go back and read Jewish writings and you can look at what Jesus does here and you can look at history and and some of the scholarly treatment and you can look and see what was the pattern of synagogue worship. Well, this is what happened in synagogue worship. And and I want you to ask yourself if you see a lot of similarities to what we do today. There were singing of psalms, okay? So there was singing in the synagogue. And obviously, they didn't have praise songs or contemporary music. It was the Psalter, the Psalms. They would sing that. Then there would be a scripture reading from the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. This was almost like a call to worship where the rabbi would stand and he would call the congregation to gather under the preached word so they would be ready to hear the word of the Lord. Then they would repeat the 18 blessings, this would be almost like a prayer of thanksgiving, a prayer of blessings. There would be a reading from the law in Hebrew. This would be a section from um, probably Genesis through Deuteronomy, uh, the selected text. There, there may have been a liturgy, an order of worship, but they, they had a scripture reading. And then they translated it in Aramaic because most of the people of the day may not have understood Hebrew. They, they spoke Aramaic. And then there would be a reading from the prophets in Hebrew, followed by a translation in Aramaic. And so you had two scripture readings. You had a scripture reading from the the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah. And then you would have a scripture reading from some of the prophets. Now, this could be Jeremiah, Isaiah, uh, Malachi, uh, what, what the Hebrew Bible would call the prophets. Now, here's what's very important. After the scripture reading the rabbi would give an expository sermon on that scripture. He would explain the scripture. He would urge people to obey the scripture. There was an actual sermon in the synagogue worship service. And then after the sermon, there would be a a concluding blessing, like a benediction by the ruler of the synagogue. Okay, so do you see elements there? that are very, very similar to what we do today. You have scripture reading, you have singing, you have prayers, you have preaching, and the preaching was in light, there was an expository preaching on the text of scripture, and then you have a closing prayer. I mean, it almost sounds like most evangelical worship services today. Do we not have singing? Do we not have scripture reading? Do we not have prayers? Do we not have expository sermons? Do we not have benedictions? So this is nothing that the synagogue worship is not something that is pagan. The order of worship in a synagogue is very similar to how we order our worship today. Now, one of the things that he said here in this book is, preaching in the ancient synagogue followed a similar pattern. Footnote, most synagogues allowed for any member to preach to the people who wished to do so. I have not found any scholarly source that corroborates that, where any member could just stand up and give a random statement. Usually what happens when you look in the scriptures is that Jesus was known as a rabbi, and so he was given permission to preach because he was a rabbi. Paul was a rabbi. He was given permission to preach when he went in the synagogues. Only rabbis preached and taught in the synagogue. And you have to understand something about that ancient culture. Rabbis were trained in the rabbinic schools. It was very, very um, um, hard to get into a rabbinic school. They started at a very early age and there was a lot of memory. They had to memorize almost the whole Old Testament And they had to be trained in the original languages, just like Moses was trained and called, just like the priests were trained and called, the rabbis in the synagogue were trained men of God who were the leaders, the elders in the synagogue system, and they were in charge of the worship service. They would stand and read the scripture. They would explain the scriptures. And sometimes there would be traveling rabbis that were allowed to preach, but they were still rabbis. I've not found any scholarly information that just shows that that rabbis were uh, giving permission for anybody just to stand, and it was this free-flowing worship service. No, it was orderly. There was an order of worship. And so from the Old Testament... And even during the transition time to the New Testament in the synagogue worship, we see Jesus even practicing this. And so what does Jesus do? He goes in and this is the second half of the worship service. Jesus gets the the scroll from Isaiah. So this is the second half of the worship service where there's the reading from the prophets and Jesus reads from the prophets. He reads that passage from Isaiah. And now what the text tells us is that he went on, let me just give you the Greek here, he began to say to them, after he had sat down, he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I don't want to go into all the Greek. I've done extensive research on this passage of scripture. This was part of my doctoral thesis. And so I've delved into this. Most scholars and most Greek scholars and most New Testament scholars believe that what Luke has recorded when Jesus reads that passage is not the full sermon. He reads the passage from Isaiah, and when it says there in the Greek text in verse 21, he began to say to them, almost every scholar believes that that means that Jesus went on to preach an expository message based upon that passage of Scripture And He urged them to respond to that. So what is expository preaching in the midst of a worship service? Well, what does Jesus do? He reads the text, He explains the text, and He urges people to respond to the text. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, today is the day to respond. I am here. I am the fulfillment of this passage. The Messiah is here. You must respond to Me. Let's just review for a moment. What did Moses do in his three expository sermons in Deuteronomy? He read the text, he explained the text, and he urged people to respond to the text. What did he commission the Levites and the priests to do in the nation of Israel? To read the text, to teach the text, to explain the text, and to urge people to respond to the text. What do we see Ezra doing there in Nehemiah chapter 8 on the platform and sending the priest out? They read the text, they explained the text, and the people responded to the text. What, does ha- what happens in the synagogues? The rabbi would read the text, explain the text, and urge people to respond to the text. And then Jesus comes along. And what does he do? He reads the text, he explains the text, and he urges people to respond to the text. You see a pattern of expository preaching all the way back from Moses, through the priesthood, through Ezra and Nehemiah, through the synagogue system, all the way to when Jesus stands in the, the synagogue and preaches that message. And so it's very, very important for us to understand that the synagogue and the Old Testament is not what he's claiming here. Let me just read it again what he claims. On page 87, Frank Viola in Pagan Christianity. There is no indication that Old Testament prophets or priests gave regular speeches to God's people. Instead, the nature of Old Testament preaching was sporadic, fluid, and open for audience participation. Preaching in the ancient synagogue followed a similar pattern. Do we see any evidence in the scriptures, any evidence in scholarly documents, historical documents, that this is true? And I would say, no, we do not see that. Now, he goes on to argue that this, quote, following the same pattern, the apostolic preaching recorded in Acts possesses the following features. It was sporadic. It was delivered on special occasions in order to deal with specific problems. It was extemporaneous and without rhetorical structure. It was almost often dialogical, meaning it included feedback and interruptions from the audience rather than a monological, a one-way discourse. Is that true? Are the sermons, the apostolic sermons in Acts fluid, monological, I mean, dialogical? What do we see? Well, let's just look at two. And I'll summarize these for the sake of time. Peter, in Acts 2, the Pentecost sermon. There is a structure to that sermon. He stands and he exposits some Old Testament passages of Scripture. And what he does is he shows the Christological implications of, of how this fulfills the, the, the prophecy of Christ's coming. And so these are Christ-centered expositions of Scripture, especially from Joel. And so when Peter preaches from, uh, in the book of Acts, he points to Joel chapter 2, Psalm 16, uh, Psalm 110, he stands, he delivers this sermon. It's an expository sermon. It's authoritative. There is an audience and yes, there's audience participation, but it's at the very end. It's not dialogical where it's a dialogue. Peter stands and authoritatively declares it and he gets to the end of his message and the people say, what must we do? They were cut to the heart. Brothers, what shall we do? That's the only response you see in this expository sermon. It's not a give and take. It's not a conversation. It's not Peter sitting around with these people, asking them what they think. No, Peter, the called man of God, the trained man of God, the apostle, stands with authority, exposits the Old Testament scriptures, points to how they find their fulfillment in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, looks that Jewish audience in his eyes and says, You crucified Jesus, and they were cut to the heart. And the only response to the dialogical nature we see is, they are under conviction and say, What must we do? And Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit now let's talk about Paul for a moment Paul is in Acts chapter 13 he preached in the synagogue and it's very interesting that Paul's preaching in the synagogue in Acts 13 follows probably the same order that we just looked at in Jesus' preaching in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4. As a matter of fact, Daryl Bach, who is a a Greek scholar who's written a great commentary, the Baker Exegetical Commentary, says this, quote, Paul's speech here in Acts 13 parallels another synagogue speech that Jesus gave in Luke 4, 16-30. The ministry of Jesus continues through Paul. So what does Paul do there in Acts 13? He exposes Old Testament text. He goes to the Exodus. He goes to the time of the judges. He talks about the ministry of Samuel, the kingship of Saul, the anointing of David. And he gets all the way up to the coming of John the Baptist. And then Paul points them to the reality of Jesus as the crucified and risen Messiah. He quotes from Psalm 2, Isaiah 55, Psalm 16, Habakkuk 1, 5, Isaiah 49, 6. So he is doing expositional preaching on Old Testament texts, Christ-centered expository preaching. And again, Paul was a a rabbi, even though he was saved. He he was still a Pharisee. He was still a rabbi. He was trained in the rabbinical schools. And so in in Pisidia of Antioch, in Acts chapter 13, he's given permission as the trained man of God to preach. And so he systematically goes through these Old Testament texts to the audience. In Acts 13, 28 through 32, by raising Jesus from the dead. So it was an expository sermon that focused on reaching lost people through the good news of the gospel of the death, burial, and Jesus, uh, of Jesus Christ. And notice how they responded. It wasn't they interrupted him in the middle of the sermon, it wasn't dialogical after the sermon. After the sermon was over. Acts 13:42. As they went out, okay, so the sermon's over, the service is over, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath, which is amazing. This expository preaching by Paul that was Christ-centered, that was gospel-filled, that was full of the scriptures that explain and apply the Old Testament scriptures clearly about Jesus, these people were excited. They came to Paul and said, we want you to come back. We want to hear more of this. And so the next Sunday the whole town gathers and Acts 13.49 says that the, the the word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. So even in the apostolic preaching of the gospel in the book of Acts, it's not dialogical where people are sitting around in a circle and everybody has a participation. What we see is one man The man of God, the called man of God, whether it's Peter, whether it's Stephen, whether it's Philip, whether it's Paul, you've got the called man of God who stands before the people, reads the text, explains the text, urges people to respond to the text. And so you see it in the apostolic model. You see it in Moses. You see it in the priesthood. You see it in Ezra and Nehemiah. You see it in the synagogue system. You see it in Jesus when he preached in the synagogue. You see it in Peter and in Paul and in Acts. And then what about the epistles? Because those are all examples of preaching. Examples. They're not necessarily didactic texts that teach us the ins and outs of worship services and what, what's to regulate a worship service, is there are more examples. We, we look at these as, as models as examples, but then you get to the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. those are didactic in the sense that they actually teach how pastors are to lead churches, and, and, and what church services are to look like. And so what I want to do is go to a very key passage of Scripture which is 1 Timothy four, thirteen, Because what Paul is going to urge Timothy to do here as a pastor, now again, Timothy is the called man of God. We know that. The elders laid their hands upon him. Whether you want to call that ordination or not, he was a called and qualified man who had a gift, and the elders of the church recognized him, and he was installed as the chief lead pastor of the church in Ephesus, and he had elders around him, Because we know in Acts chapter 20, Paul appointed elders. There were elders in the church of of Ephesus. And so even in the the epistles here, in the pastoral epistles, we see a pattern. And what do you think the pattern is going to follow? Is it going to follow what we've seen in Moses and in the priesthood and Ezra and Nehemiah and the synagogue system and in Jesus when he goes into Nazareth and Peter and Paul? Well, let's look. 1 Timothy 4.13. In this passage, Paul gives a threefold command for how pastors should minister the Word in the life of the church. So let's read 1 Timothy 4.13. Until I come, devote yourself to, number one, the public reading of Scripture, number two, to exhortation, number two, to teaching. So three things. Number one, the public reading of Scripture, number two, preaching, number three, teaching. Now this model resembles the format and the contents of the synagogue worship service. The same type of ministry that Jesus did in Luke 4 when he read publicly from the scriptures and then preached an exposition of Isaiah. Same thing Paul did when he entered the synagogues on his missionary journeys. So the first element, the public reading of the scriptures. This was a practice inherited from synagogue worship. The public reading of the Old Testament. It was assumed that the primary function of the public reading of the scriptures was to lay the groundwork for the preaching and the teaching to follow. Okay, so that's why we have public reading of scriptures in our worship services today. We saw Moses do it. We saw Ezra do it. We see the it's the rabbis in the synagogue do it. We saw Jesus do it. We saw Peter do it. We saw Paul do it. And so almost every scholar, New Testament scholar, reputable scholar, will say when Paul is giving this direction to Timothy here about the public reading of scriptures, it flows directly from what was practiced in the synagogue. Hughes Olf and Old has written an extensive volume on preaching in the early church. And he says, quote, "...no doubt the practice of the synagogue was continued in the church." And this passage from 1 Timothy is the strongest possible evidence for this. At the center of Christian preaching from the very beginning was the exposition of the public reading of the Scripture. So what happens here is that the public reading of the Scripture by the called man of God sets the tone for the entire worship service. We are to gather under the authority of the Word. And then later on, the word's going to be taught, the word's going to be preached, the word's going to be explained. And so the second element that Paul says is to Timothy is to engage in exhortation, paraklesis. Most modern translations render this as preaching, ex- exhortive preaching, exhortation, encouraging, exhorting the congregation to obey the scriptures. Um, to bring instruction, to, to um, challenge, to exhort, to encourage, to declare. This is expository preaching. This is the whole idea that, that the text needs to be exegeted, it needs to be explained, and that you're, you're not just giving a lecture. You're not just giving a boring lecture. You're actually explaining the text in such a way that you're urging people to respond. You're passionately calling them to a response. You, you're, you're urging the entire person. You're aiming for the heart, the mind, and the will. So you have the public reading of Scripture. You have exhortation of Scripture. And then you have the third charge, teaching. A little bit difference. Uh, This is this is really the nuance that I believe the Scripture uh, delineates between teaching and preaching. Preaching or exhortation, I think, really aims for the heart and the will. I think teaching aims for the mind. And so um, John Stott says this: It was taken for granted from the beginning that Christian preaching would be expository preaching. That is, that all Christian instruction and exhortation would be drawn out of the passage which had been read. Now, that's a model that you see. You see that Paul urges or teaches Timothy to have these elements regulated in the worship service. The public reading of Scripture, teaching and exhortation. Nowhere does he say, let's have a dialogue. Let's let this be a free-flowing discussion. The very words themselves lend themselves to a declaratory, authoritative man of God standing before people and preaching that's been the pattern of biblical history from the very beginning, from Moses all the way through. And then you've got 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where it talks about all Scripture being God-breathed and is profitable for correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The man of God. That is a word that Paul uses for the called pastor, the the elder, the teaching pastor, the lead pastor, whatever you want to call it, the man of God. And so in specifically... The man of God, we saw Moses as a man of God, the priests were men of God, rabbis in a sense were men of God, the apostles were men of God, and here we have regulation for the New Testament church, the elders, the, the pastors, the men of God are to be equipped by the God-breathed Scripture. But then right in the next chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, "...I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ who's to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preach the word. It's the word caruso. It means to proclaim with authority, to herald, to stand with authority before the people, and to preach not manby pamby not dialogue, not conversation, but a thus saith the Lord, the called man of God, standing with authority of the text to preach expository sermons to the gathered people of God. Now, we've seen this biblical model. I would argue we've seen the biblical model. We've seen it all the way from Moses, through to the priesthood, through to Ezra and Nehemiah, in through the rabbinical system in the synagogues. Jesus himself practiced it. Peter, Paul, and then what Paul charges in the pastoral epistles. And so we can categorically denounce the assertions made in this book. And their answer is, okay, if it didn't come from the Bible, where's the modern-day sermon? The modern-day expository sermon where a a clergy, a paid person, the called man of God, the one person stands before people and gives a monologue, where did that come from? Here's their answer. Quote, the Christian sermon was borrowed from the pagan pool of Greek culture. As a hierarchical structure began to take root, the idea of a religious Specialist emerged. In a word, the Greco Roman sermon replaced prophesying, open sharing, and spirit inspired teaching. The sermon became the elitist privilege of church officials, particularly the bishops. Some people had to be educated in the schools of rhetoric to learn how to speak. Without this education, a Christian was not permitted to address God's people. Put another way, neither sermons nor homiletics, the art of sermonizing, have a Christian origin. They were stolen from the pagans. And they go on to credit John Chrysostom and Augustine with borrowing from pagan Greek rhetoric to birth the modern sermon. And then they said that Martin Luther and the Reformers and the Puritans just followed from this. And this has the, the whole idea of a monologue from a called man of God, one person standing and preaching trained to exposit God's scripture is not biblical, it's pagan. And they attribute it to really John Chrysostom. Now, let me talk a little bit about John Chrysostom, because you may not know who John Chrysostom is. He's basically called John the Golden Mouth. He was a great preacher. He was a great orator. He was probably the greatest preacher in the early church. He was born in A.D., 345 he was baptized in 369 he was ordained in 386 and he became the pastor in Antioch and then later on in 398 he became the bishop of Constantinople now he was part of what was called the um back in, let me just give you a little bit of church history back during the 300s and 400s um, there were two schools of thought and how you approach Scripture. There was the um, Alexandrian school in Alexandria, um, Egypt, really into allegory, allegorizing the text. Um, it was not faithful expository preaching. It was more allegory. They came up with very fanciful interpretations of the Scriptures. It was not the what we would call the historical grammatical method of preaching. John... Chrysostom was not of that school. He was from the what we call the Antiochian, or Antioch school, which looked more at the historical, grammatical, the plain sense of the text, more what we would consider um, expository preaching. So for his time, he was very unusual. He was an expository preacher. He held to what we'd call a historical grammatical method, the plain meaning of the text, and he was also very skilled in rhetoric. He was able to speak well. He also got in trouble with his sermons. He often confronted um, the court at Constantinople, um, especially the empress, Eudoxia. Uh, She was very immoral, and he would preach against her immorality. And basically, he was exiled on many occasions, and ultimately he died in 407, um, exiled. But let me give you how John Chrysostom preached the style of his messages his sermons began with a introduction then there was a commentary on the text of scripture giving exegesis of the scripture and then it was followed by exhortation encouragement response to the text and then his sermon concluded with a brief prayer and doxology. We have an extensive collection of his sermons. He was an expository preacher. He composed some 88 sermons on the gospel of John, 90 sermons on the gospel of Matthew, 32 on the epistle to Romans. And yes, he was called the gold mouth because he was skilled in rhetoric, but The argument is that he borrowed from paganism. He borrowed from Greek rhetoric. Now, let's just see if that argument holds. Just because somebody is skilled in rhetoric, skilled in oratory, is not necessarily a bad thing. Today, do you want pastors who are called men of God to be haphazard in their approach to speaking? Do you want them to mumble over their words? Do you want them to be... um, soft-spoken, do do, do you want there to be lack of rhetoric and oratorical skills in your preaching? No, we would say we want a called, here's here's my philosophy, here's my belief, a called man of God to preach will be gifted in his ability to speak. And people will want to listen to him. Now, this does not mean that he's the greatest speaker that's ever been there. It doesn't mean that we're to wow people with our oratorical skill. If you go to First Corinthians chapters one and two, Paul denounces rhetoric and oratory for the sake of, of of denying the gospel. So, I don't think Paul was outright saying don't be, don't use rhetoric in your in your preaching. Uh, don't use. Um, structure, uh, don't build your sermon around points, uh, don't use oratory. What Paul was arguing against is, is inflating that or making that the center so that people are wowed by your rhetorical prowess and they don't actually hear the text. Now, one of the things that was interesting about Chrysostom is that because he was such a good speaker, the people would often applaud his messages, because they were influenced by the Greek culture. And he would silence that. He told them, listen, do not clap or applaud at these messages. This is an exposition of God's word. And so, yes, he was the gold mouth. He used skillful rhetoric. He spoke well. He had well-organized sermons. But his sermons were expositions and explanations of Scripture. I would say he just followed the model that we've seen throughout the scriptures now he he gave an introduction he, there's nothing wrong with in a sermon giving an introduction to surface the need to to tell people what you're going to talk about. Um, I do that every Sunday, try to find some type of attention grabbing introduction so that uh, people will be engaged in what I have to say, and I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that, and so sure, he used an introduction, but he would. If you go back and read his sermons, he would read the text, he would explain the text, and he would do that from a very expository, exegetical method, and then he would urge people to respond to the text, and then he would close with prayer. What have we seen all along? An expository preaching is from a biblical model. You read the text, you explain the text, and you urge people to respond to the text. So I think they have unfairly basically accused John Chrysostom, the gold mouth, of adopting pagan Greek rhetoric, and that became the form of the sermon. And so then you had a specialist who was the only person allowed to speak and stood up and preached. Now, really, if you look under the surface of this book, Pagan Christianity, it's nothing more than apologetic for Anabaptist theology. What do I mean by Anabaptist theology? Not Baptist, Anabaptist. The Anabaptists were around during the Reformation. The Quakers, others. It's this whole idea that there's this egalitarian view of church where everybody sits around, everybody has authority. People are prompted by the Spirit. They can say whatever they want. There's this free-flowing experience. Um, It's more mystical. It's more subjective. Um, There's not a view of... An ordained called man of God or elders to lead the church. It's very egalitarian. That's really what they're arguing from. They're arguing for more of an Anabaptist view of church, and basically they're saying that the Protestant church has been co-opted or has been um, denigrated by pagan Greek philosophy, and it started with John Chrysostom, and it came to the Reformers, and it moved to the Puritans, and it moved to the First Great Awakening, and so what we've inherited today is basically not anything that you see in the New Testament. And what they failed to look at is we've seen the model from the Bible of how the worship service was regulated. Now, let me give you some quotes as we bring this thing to a close that I want to respond to. How sermonizing harms the church. First, quote, "...the sermon makes the preacher the virtuoso performer of the regular church gathering. There is no room for interrupting or questioning the preacher while he's delivering his discourse." The sermon freezes and imprisons the functioning of the body of Christ. It forces a docile priesthood by allowing a pulpiteers to dominate the church gathering week after week. That's a pot shot. We do not consider ourselves virtuoso performers. We do not look at ourselves as a priest standing there not allowing people to question. We're just following the biblical model that the called an equipped man of God is to stand before the gathered people of God. He's done the hard work of exegesis. He's been in the text all week. He's been in prayer. He is an official elder of the church. He's been in an official office, has had hands laid upon him. He's, he's in the office of an elder. And he's to stand before the church with the confidence that he spent time exegeting the text. And yes, he may be the only one standing given a monologue and people aren't to interrupt him because when the preached word of God is there, there's authority behind that. And the the man of God has the inherent authority from the text to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. And people sit in authority under the text and under the authority of the preacher, not because... They, 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 they you know, bow allegiance to unlimited authority, but he's the called man of God that's preaching. Number two, what they say, quote, The sermon often stalemates spiritual growth. Because it is a one-way affair, it encourages passivity. Well, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. God, from the very beginning, has chosen preaching, speaking, the taking in of the gospel of the word through the ears as his method of transforming people. And so whether you think a monologue of a person standing up is passive, then I don't think you understand the role of the Holy Spirit in creating faith when the preached word is accomplished. Talk about passive. God stood to an empty universe and spoke and said, let there be light and there was light. Moses stood before the people and preached. Ezra stood before the people and preached. Jesus stood before the people and preached. Paul and Peter stood before the people and preached. It's not passive. God's people are sitting under the authority of the preached word and the Holy Spirit creates faith through the preached word and he sanctifies people through the preached word. It's not passive. They say we do not grow by passive listening week after week. Third, quote, The sermon preserves the unbiblical clergy mentality. It creates an excessive and pathological dependence on the clergy. For these reasons, the sermon is one of the biggest roadblocks to a functioning priesthood. What he's arguing against is the fact that in the sermon, in the worship service, because there's one man preaching and declaring God's word, People are pathologically dependent upon that one man. And and they don't function within their spiritual gifts. Well, that's that's a flattened out view of the church. In corporate worship, under the gathering of the preached word, the preaching pastor, the called elder, is the called man of God. And at that moment, he's called to preach and to deliver God's word to the congregation who's sitting under the word. That's the corporate worship gathering. But in the life of the church... Of course we're to be using our spiritual gifts. Of course it's the priesthood of all believers. Of course there is to be a discovering and using of spiritual gifts and serving one another in the total life of the church. It just comes to when it's gathered for corporate worship, when people are gathered under the authority of the word, there is one man that's called to deliver the message. Fourth, quote, Rather than equipping the saints, the sermon de-skills them. The truth is that the contemporary sermon preached week, every week has little power to equip God's people for spiritual service and functioning. I resent that statement, to be honest with you. It has little power to equip God's people for service. The sermon actually de-skills them. I can't tell you how many people in our church have come to me over the years through the expository preaching of the text have grown, have been transformed, have changed, have repented, have have become discipled. What is the one greatest way I can disciple the maximum amount of people as pastor? It's the sermon. Yes, in one-on-one counseling and in small groups, I can have an opportunity to minister the Word of God. But my one shot week after week is the gathered people of God. That is the one time where I can encourage, I can disciple, I can train, I can lead the people of God and get the maximum output from that because we have the full church gathered under the preaching of the word. And so it is a time of equipping. Now, I can see if a pastor doesn't use it as a time of equipping and the pastor doesn't see it as discipleship and the pastor doesn't preach expository messages, then you could view it as as de-skilling the people. But I think the pastor must look at his sermon as, I am discipling God's people. I am feeding the sheep. I am being used by the Holy Spirit to grow the sheep. And he needs to see the sermon as leading, feeding, guiding, and equipping and encouraging the flock. And what's truly going to bring about change? the faithful, consistent preaching of God's word expositorily, week after week. They say this, quote, Contemporary pulpiteerism generally fails to get beyond disseminating information and onto equipping believers to experience and use what they've heard. If it's bad preaching, if it's a lecture, if all it does is disseminate information, then yes, I would agree with them. But that's not expository preaching. That's not biblical preaching. Biblical preaching, as we've seen, is you read the text. You explain the text. And then you encourage and exhort people to respond to the text. You bring in application. You bring in how the text bears upon their life. It's not just a boring, dry lecture. In your sermons, you are exposing people to the voice of God so that they can respond. This is a quote. In the end, the sermon actually intensifies the impoverishment of the church. Well, I disagree with everything they've said in this book. And my concern is that this pagan Christianity is making its ranks in the emergent church, liberal church, but my concern is it's coming into the conservative church and that young pastors, young church leaders are going to be enamored with this type of approach to ministry and they're going to end up abandoning what the bible actually teaches about preaching and about church and about ecclesiology for something new and something fresh and something that that may sound exciting i mean pagan christianity that, that, that's a bold statement but i'm afraid a lot of young leaders are getting baited by this pagan christianity And here's the thing, two assumptions that I think are underlying this book. First assumption is Anabaptist theology rules the day. And you can go study the Anabaptists, um, basically in the same time period as the Reformers, but totally opposed and totally in opposition to the magisterial Reformers, Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, and others. The Westminster, I mean, all the things that came from the Protestant Reformation, they stood in direct opposition, the Anabaptist movement, assumption number one. And assumption number two, because it's by Barna, pragmatism. So you've got uh, an amalgam of Anabaptist theology with modern-day pragmatism that comes from his research research. So we've done all these polls, and this is what lost people are telling us, and this is how we need to do church, and so everything's driven by pragmatism. So we should just change the way we do church to meet the market need, and let's just adopt an Anabaptist theology, because that's our assumption of what works best. And so really, it's not pagan Christianity, it's Anabaptist pragmatism. Anabaptist pragmatism is the major assumption behind pagan Christianity, and I think it's also poor research. And so you be the judge. I don't encourage you to read the book. I, I have the book just so I could do research and, and find out what this movement's all about. I, I've heard about it for the past you know seven or eight years. And, uh, but it seems like recently it's becoming more and more popular. More and more people are talking about it. Uh, George Barn is very influential. He's got the, you know, the polling group. People go to him to find out the polls. Uh, but George Barn has always been driven by pragmatism. He's always been a pragmatist. He's always been more seeker-sensitive. And so uh, you've got the seeker-sensitive, pragmatic George Barna approach, and then you've got poor scholarship from Frank Viola bringing in this Anabaptist um, assumption um, kind of under the, under the covers there of saying, you know, this is really the way church ought to be, an Anabaptist model, but basically blaming the way it's gotten on, on Greek paganism. And so you've got a very dangerous book, a very dangerous movement. And so hopefully you've seen a biblical theology of how this all works together. And so again, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. Uh, This podcast has maybe been a little bit different, maybe a little bit more intense, more um, historical, dealing with some issues. But um, I want to go into the deep end of the water sometimes on these podcasts. I think that's why you listen. Uh, these are these are topics that maybe you've never been confronted with. Um, I want to expose you to them so that you know about them, especially if you're a listener to this and you're a pastor or a young pastor or a church planner or a seminary student, you need to be aware of these things because you need to be making these decisions now. What is your ecclesiology? What is your theology? What's your view and philosophy of preaching? How are you going to order a church? Um, these are all things you need to be thinking about because there's going to be books and movements and conferences and people all over the place they're going to tell you how to do it and it's going to be driven by pragmatism and poor theology so you've always got to go back to what does the bible say and what have we learned from church history about these important issues so if you would go to itunes and give us a review and rating that would be awesome if you could contact me through seancole.net email or Facebook. I'd love to hear from you. Maybe a future topic that you'd like to talk about. Um, So again, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. May God bless you, keep you, and cause His face to shine upon you.